Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. Well, certainly today is about thanking moms and who moms are and what they mean in every one of our lives. And uh, so hats off to moms today. Thank you so much for being the examples in our life, for being nurturers in our life and raising us up in the way that we should go. Every one of you has a mom, and so today I just want to encourage you to be sure to say thank you, to reach out. If mom isn't here, to call her and say thank you, and if your mom's already passed away, to take some time just to thank God for the time you had with mom. Somebody else I'd like to lift up today just in thanks and bring them to everybody's attention have to do with the volunteers uh, who serve in the life of our church. Each week we try to have a moment and recognize folks who serve in different areas, and today I'd like to recognize our teenagers, our students in the life of our church, who are involved not only in coming on Wednesday nights and being here, but also in serving in other areas. So uh, David Condra works with the worship and the tech team, as well as Kid Zone. Hannah Condra works in worship, as well as Kid Zone, as does Jacob Hooker, worship in Kid Zone. <clears throat> uh, Alexa McCarthy, Alexis McCarthy, sorry, who works in Kid Zone. Mariah Grawl, who works in worship, helps in worship, as well as Kid Zone. Ben Hooker, who works in Kids Zone, Curtis Bargains in Kids Zone, Christina Boone in Bone in Kids Zone, and Will Chambers in Tech. No Kids Zone? No, not so much. Families enough? <laughs> I just want to say thank you to you teens. Now, as you know, a couple of weeks ago they did their 30-hour famine, and our teenagers uh, went 30 hours without eating. Anybody know teenagers anywhere who are willing to go 30 hours without eating? Our teens did that, and uh, folks sponsored them, and they were able to raise $586 for World Vision during their 30-hour famine. So would you join me in just giving a hand to our teenagers at Community Church? <laughs> hey, and also to those of you who work with our teens on Wednesday nights, uh, who are in here early on Wednesday, setting the place up and moving chairs and setting up tables and studying lessons and doing games and just being the folks who love and invest in our teenagers, you guys make a huge difference. And remember, that's the generation that are going to be the leaders and the teachers and the elders and not too many years from today. So thanks for what you're doing and how you're investing. If you would like to get involved in our student ministry, uh, just even if it's a matter of being here and helping put together some nachos or helping set up tables all the way to being somebody who loves kids enough to teach and lead their life groups and be involved in their lives, would you please check in with Pastor Chambers, who's uh, right over here waving at you right now in case you didn't know what he looks like. We can't fix how he looks, but we can certainly help you with uh, finding how to get in touch with him. <laughs> uh, just michael at sbcommunitychurch.com, or you can check him out at the ministry desk anytime. Just put a note over there saying you'd like to be involved with our teenagers, a neat ministry. Um, so today we're picking back up in the book of Mark, and we are going to be going... Um, in chapter 3 today, we're going to look at, at family and mothers and Jesus and some things like that as it all falls today, and I'm sure that was entirely coincidental that that happened, but it'll be a lot of fun today looking at Mark. So our, our passages we're going to look at in Mark chapter 3 today, we're going to engage these things. Um, let's read the 
family part correctly because that matters greatly. Many of us, when we think of Jesus' family, we have some preconceived notions. It's important to understand exactly what that family was looking like. Second, we're going to look at a big backfire. And then third, we're going to ask the question, who's your mama? So that's what we're going to be looking at today here at Community Church. If you have your Bibles, please join me in Mark chapter 3. We're going to begin in verses 20 through 21. So Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Jesus entered a house, and the crowd gathered around so that they could not, were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. When we think of family, most of us in the Western world have this idea of the, the picture on the back of people's cars, right? The, the one where you've got the mom and the dad, and you know how many kids they have by whether or not it's a Ford 15-passenger van or if it's a Yaris, so you can kind of get an idea how many folks are in the family. But folks like to put the little picture on the back. And many of us have families, and we go to uh, family reunions or we go to uh, family events, and we think in terms of the mom and the dad and the kids and, and just that central family unit. This is our Western way of thinking. And so for us as Westerners, when we say family, we think, mom, dad, some of you are parts of larger family units, and maybe you live together in the same area. We, we as a family have enjoyed that this past year. When uh, my sister and brother-in-law and their family was there and mom was here, and so for us, when you said family, that kind of meant all of us that were right here. Uh, some of you live together in, in Door County here, and there may be six or eight different units that are all part of the same family, and you come together. And these are closer pictures to what a family would have looked like in Jesus' day. But understand that in the Eastern world, it wasn't so much the nuclear family the way we think of, but the extended family. And to them, an aunt, an uncle, a, a third cousin, a fourth cousin, a second aunt, a great aunt, all these people would have had exactly the same role together in family that maybe your moms and dads and sisters and brothers and cousins might have a much closer, tighter family unit. So rather than looking something like that picture, in Jesus' day, his family probably looked a whole lot more like this picture. Lots and lots and lots of them. Let's think about this, though. You're smart people. Jesus goes to Jerusalem every year with his family, right? And one year, he's left at the temple. You remember this? He's back there at the temple, and he's, and he's, he's speaking with and asking questions and talking with the priests. And in that, in, in that time, his family leaves, and they, and they head back to, to Bethlehem or to Nazareth where he's going to be living. And so as they leave, it's not until that night. They're miles down the road, and they stop to, to, to camp there for the night. And they look around, and they can't find Jesus. Has anybody else ever looked at that story and wondered, well, how did you lose your kid? Would you just leave your kid behind? And I mean, did, all you got to do is find your three or four kids and go home. And as Westerners, that story is kind of perplexing. Have you ever been perplexed by that? Like, how could that happen? Has, has a wife ever thought, I would never? You know, maybe the husband, I would never have lost my children. There's a reason. Jesus was more than likely with one of his hundred cousins when they were there. Probably amongst the, the dozens of nephews and nieces were there. The, the aunts and uncles are watching lots of kids that are all part of the, you know, of Nazareth clan. And as they, they make their way back to where they're going to stay that night, all the kids would go to their nuclear family units, and that's where they would sleep, and that's where they would stay, or not. But it isn't until then that Mary and Joseph realize Jesus isn't there. So let's rethink this concept of family. Let me, let me back up and try one more time to help really drive this home. When Jesus um, shows up in Capernaum, Capernaum, and he begins to teach, and he teaches there, the people who see him 
know who he is because he's part of that particular family, Joseph's family. They know Mary. They, they know John the Baptist was his cousin. They know a lot of these other people that are in this area. They're kind of a clan. Who's native to Door County? Okay. Those of you who are kind of native to this area, would you agree that there are kind of some clans in Door County? There's some family names we might recognize if we were to, to out them. I won't do that right now because I don't want the lot and box to feel weird. But if you were, to, if you were to, to do that and start going through some of the names that are kind of those Door County names, there's some big families that are part of here. And remember, I've told you time and time again that the area where Jesus ministered is about the size of Door County, and he changed the world. In that area, somebody is going to see Jesus and know exactly who he is. Folks are coming from all over the, the region. They're, they're coming from far away from just Nazareth and Galilee, and they're coming and they're being healed. Jesus is healing the sick. He's giving the blind their sight. He's given the withered and the paraplegic mobility and freedom and the ability to be, go back into the temple and to worship. He's restoring their relationship with their fellow man and with God. And Jesus is doing all of that because Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the theme of Mark. So during the course of this, his family is going to come to a point of, let's say, conflict. Because I can tell you right now, if I had a brother who was claiming to be the son of man, the fulfillment of prophecy across the Old Old Testament, I'm going to be going, uh-uh, I grew up with you. And you might be impressive, but you're not God. And some of the, some of the aunts and uncles that are around who've, who've walked with Jesus back and forth, who changed his diapers when he was little, who, who carried him when he was crying or colicky, and, and the people who worked with Jesus as he was growing up and taught him how to be a carpenter, taught him how to be a mason, and all, taught him how to fish. All these people who are around there are the extended family. They know Jesus. So let's reread this passage real carefully, and let's ask a question. Are we making an assumption when we read it? Or might there be another way to engage this passage? So let's look at it one more time. One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even uh, find time to eat. When his family heard that this was happening, they tried to take him away, saying, he's out of his mind. Okay, honest. How many of you thought the first time you read that? It was Mary and Joseph, and maybe a brother or two came to grab him and take him home. How many of you thought that? Having looked through what we just did, is there a bigger picture happening here? Here's why this matters. I, I know you're like, whoa, whoopee, thanks for the history lesson. That's great. I could have gotten that on CNN. Here, here's what our Discovery Channel, here's where this, where this matters. His family is beginning to feel the tension. You see, all the people that are associated with Jesus are being asked about, hey, isn't that your cousin? Isn't that your nephew? That's your son who's healing all the people? What's up with that? How's he doing that? That's remarkable. That's amazing. But I've heard that he's saying that your sins are forgiven. He's, forgiven. he's made all the priests really mad. The priests are furious. What's going on? Hey, what's going on over there in your house? You guys need to get a hold of things. You're kind of messing with the social order around here. Hey, the Romans aren't going to be tolerant of an uprising. What's going on with you guys? I'm not sure our family wants to do business with your family anymore. You guys are creating tension around here. He's upset the apple cart. You ever read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? It's kind of that thing right there. Who's moved the cheese? Who's upset the norm? Who's messed with things? Who's causing ripples? The family now is going to intervene. And it might have been great uncle Bob and Frank who've come over there with some of the other folks and been like, hey, 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 come here, come here, come here, come here. You need to cut it out. You're causing problems. 
It wasn't Mary and Joseph and Judas and John and others who showed up at that point to take Jesus away. It was the extended family. And isn't that the way? As soon as we start to live lives that are more Jesus-like, lives that are more Christ-like, that are more biblical, if we start to do that and we haven't been living that way before, I think it's fair to say that the people who are around you are going to want to go, hey, 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 what's going up? You're, you're kind of messing with things. We got a system. You know, we got everything was comfortable. And now you're what, holier than now? Now you're like, oh, Mr. Church guy. Now you're like a Miss Holy. What's the deal? I know you. You're not all that good. You're no better than me. Have you ever experienced that? Have you seen that? The probabilities are when you start to live like Jesus, you're going to cause tension. And it happened in his life, and it's likely to happen in yours. So let's keep reading, because this gets a little bit more interesting. In Mark uh, chapter 3, a little bit further along, verses 31 to 32, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd standing or sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Okay, now let's contrast that with what we read a minute ago. His family came. Well, now, there's, well, I skipped some verses. We're going to come back to them in just a minute. There's been some time has elapsed, and now we got Mary and the brothers and sisters are going to show up. A couple of questions immediately come up that we need to engage. Brothers and sisters, how many of you grew up hearing that Mary was a perpetual virgin, just had Jesus, and that was it? There were no brothers and sisters, and clearly, clearly, these can't really be his brothers and sisters. They must have been adopted. Uh, Joseph must have remarried, and Mary was in a polygamous relationship because there were Mormons or something. All these excuses people try to come up with to maintain this idea that Mary was the divine one, and therefore she gave birth to Jesus, and he was divine. The reality is this. Jesus had brothers and sisters, lots of them. And we know the names of many others, Judas and James and their sisters, but, but we know that at this point in time, things have elevated because before it was some of the extended family came to get Jesus and stop all this prophecy and stop all this healing and all this teaching, but now it's going to be mom and brothers. But a couple of things are interesting here. The first thing you'll notice is they stood outside. They weren't even going to walk in the room. Not even going to go where he is at this point. They're going to stand outside and say, he can come out here to us. Sound like anybody else's family, how they might handle it? Just reminding you who's in charge here. They're not going to go in. They're not going to be that closely associated with Jesus. Why? Because the rest of the family pressure is now landing on Mary. It's landing on Judas and James. It's landing on the sisters. And what they've done right here at this point They've buckled. They haven't necessarily caved, but they've definitely buckled. And such is the case a lot of times when we take stands for Christ. We stand up for Jesus. We do what we're called to do. The people around us will buckle. It might be your boss. It might be your coworker. It might be your neighbor, your friend. But when you take a stand, you see people start to buckle. Let's look at around in our world today. A Christian takes a stand on the subject of abortion. Do you feel bold? Might there be a price that you could expect to pay if you were to take a firm stand on this subject of abortion? It's the reason a lot of Christians are like, yeah, I just I don't, I don't talk about you know, my political views. And they turn that into a political view because they know, in, 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 what's the word I want to use here? Instinctively, what happens. You know what happens instinctively if you take a stand. 
That's why I, I don't like politics involved in Sturgeon Bay Community Church. We don't want to do that because I don't believe in these dichotomies are part of what the family of Jesus does. We can stand for issues and for people and on what the Bible teaches, but we always know that there's going to be the potential for a price to pay. If we stand to say that, that Jesus' plan, God's plan for the family, is one man, one woman for one lifetime, that's God's perfect plan then anybody who's been through a divorce, anybody who's been through, who has a, a, a son or a relative or a daughter or a mom or, a brother, or somebody who's broken that plan is living outside of God's plan in some form of an alternative lifestyle. If you take a stand, there's the tension that develops in the relationships. Anybody else feel that? You see, Jesus' family is feeling a tension, and that tension exists because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And for them to have to submit to that is extremely difficult. Wouldn't you agree? So they've come to stop what Jesus is doing. And I can guarantee you this. In your life, as you start to live a life like Jesus, teach the things Jesus taught, live the life Jesus requires of you, there's going to be people who are going to come and want to stop you to be like, hey, hey, take it easy there. You know, you don't need to be such a Bible thumper. Just kind of go along to get along. It's all good. You don't, you don't need to be jumping out there and taking stands and being an extremist. You know, you know we, we are as we're made, right? I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere, right? People are always going to want to get you to back off, step back, not be bold for Jesus Christ. That's a guarantee. Now, throughout the course of the Scripture, there are numerous places where we encounter Jesus's family from, from Psalms all the way through John. There's statements about his family. Um, there's statements about how uh, um, the, the family acts, the family behaves, the family keeps things in order. And then later we're going to start to hear uh, in, in John and Acts and 2 Corinthians where people assume that you're crazy if you're following Jesus. You're out of your mind if you're following the teachings of the Messiah. So these two things, I, I just put those verses up there. If you want to check in behind me on the, on the slides online, those are there for your study if you want to use them in life groups. That's what they're there for. But I put them up because I want you to be able to think about this term family a little closer. Jesus, uh, as he starts to call his apostles and his disciples around him, he calls these 12. Okay, So as we're still on this subject of the family and getting that concept of family correctly, Jesus calls these 12 around him. But in addition to these 12, there's some other people that Jesus spends his time with. And those we know are going to be Lazarus. And there's going to be Mary and Mary Magdalene and some of the other folks, Zacchaeus arguably, some of these folks who became close friends of his later on, Nicodemus, these people who are close to Jesus that he spends his time with, that he stays with, the people who are his, his patrons, people who are his benefactors, the folks who support him. Jesus has a large social network because in much of the case, we know biblically, his family has withdrawn from him, including the great Mary. These folks have backed away from Jesus, and Jesus finds himself being supported and surrounded by people who are not his immediate family. And I want you to understand, in the ancient world, that was extraordinarily uncommon. Extraordinarily uncommon. Now I want you to think of the parable of the prodigal son. Do you see where Jesus, as he's delivering that parable gets a lot of people's attention by the way that he engages it and what he has to say? Do you see where people start to make the parallel? Do you see where later on when, when James, the brother of Jesus, comes to Christ, and we read about that in Acts, when James comes to Christ and realizes you are the Son of God, and James becomes a great apostle, wrote one of the greatest books in the New Testament, that family later would come to Jesus, but there was a struggle that they were feeling. Understand, 
Jesus' family was more the people that surrounded him than the people who raised him. Jesus' family is more than just Mary and Joseph and a couple of brothers and sisters. His family is a clan. It's a big clan. And this is who's struggling with Jesus' message as much as anybody. Now, let's start to make that a little bit more tangible. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. Chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and he, he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So Jesus summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided itself, that house cannot stand. If Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but it's finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder the house. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit has no forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So the plot thickens. There's the family. The family are the ones who are seeing that, that Jesus is bringing a new message. He is bringing the message of God. He's, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And this has caused him division with his own family. This family is under pressure from the guilds, they're under pressure from the neighbors, they're under pressure from all the different patrons and the people in that collective society. And now we start to see the big pressures coming from the priests, the religious establishment in Jerusalem is saying, uh-uh, this guy's a problem, we've got to put a stop to this, let's put pressure on the family and try to put a stop to this Jesus guy. Now, why would the Pharisees want to put a stop to Jesus? He awed them with his teaching. He amazed them by bringing the truth of scriptures alive to them. He is fulfilling the prophecies of the Messiah that they're looking for. And Mark is careful to show what so many of those, those prophecies are that prove he's the Messiah. All of this is going on. Why in the world would the priests want to stop Jesus? You see, Jesus is messing with their hierarchy and their system. They've got everything laid out just right. It's working just perfect. What we don't need is for our paycheck to get ditched because, you know, our security to get lost. Okay, our system, our security, our safety. Jesus is going to upset that whole apple cart by actually being the Messiah. Because if the Messiah is here, it means you don't need to have a sacrificial system anymore. It means that the temple in Jerusalem isn't necessary anymore. And the thousands of priests whose living comes from being the intercessor between humanity and Yahweh God are no longer necessary. It means that no longer do people have to go to Jerusalem and pay money to make a sacrifice to, to buy turtle doves and to buy lambs and to buy goats and oxen and, and to, to make sacrifice. Now they can go straight to the Father. Their sins are forgiven. Now the social order is upset. It means that people with leprosy or, or, or people who are, who are uh, paraplegic or people who are blind or who are deaf, anybody who has an infirmity, now that infirmity doesn't represent a total separation from God and a dependency on the priests. Now the social order is upset. Everybody, the unclean, the ethnically diverse, the racially diverse, the gender diverse are all of a sudden able to come before the Father because there's neither Jew nor Greek nor man nor woman nor slave nor free, but all are one in Jesus Christ. The priests are having no part of this. You see the tension? But there's something even bigger that takes place right here. 
If you will remember, going back just a little bit, we were in chapter 2. Let's see here. Chapter 3, chapter three, verse 6. It said, Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him, how they might kill Jesus. Why would the Pharisees want to kill Jesus? If he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's the fulfillment, why do they want to kill him? Well, one part, obviously, we talked about is he's upsetting their system. The other part that's really important that we don't want to miss right here is that Jesus is healing, Jesus is forgiving, and Jesus is engaging the Pharisees in open dialogue. So let's go back to that family, let's go back to that society, let's go back to that culture a second, and we're going to look at this thing we call backfire. That's point two today, backfire. Family, backfire. The Pharisees are going to come now, and they're going to continue to question Jesus, looking for ways to trip him up, to get him to say something so that they can turn the crowds against him and execute him. They want to just kill him. That's the easiest way to get rid of the problem is just kill him. It goes away, and nobody else will act like that. So they come, and they would pose questions to Jesus in a public, open forum. And Jesus would have to answer the question, okay? In a collectivist society with shame and with honor, the way the Eastern world worked and works today, when somebody comes and asks a question in a public forum, they're calling everybody's attention to you versus the other person. So let's say that uh, my buddy Gary and I are going to have a, a, a debate. Ready to debate Gary? Not really, but let's say Gary and I are going to have a debate. And uh, Gary stands up and he poses a question to me. What Gary would have done if he and I were doing that, he would have created now one side or the other. You tracking? It's kind of like, a, like a, a political debate, one side or the other. There's no gray. You have to be one or the other. Your side's either blue or red, right? So they're, he's going to create this dichotomy. This is what the Pharisees have done. And they figure whoever wins the argument publicly is honored, and the person who loses the argument, Gary dominates me in an argument, I'm now shamed. And being in a position of shame is terrible because now anybody who knows me or anybody who's doing business with me or anybody who might be my patron or my friend is going to put some distance between them and themselves and me because I've been shamed. And to associate with somebody who has been shamed is to take shame on yourself. Starting to hear some other hints and some other whispers of the gospel. When you take on the corruption of having been shamed... Everybody else who comes around you now takes on that same corruption. The Pharisees are furious. They're looking for ways to kill Jesus. And so in this one, they step up and they are now going to very publicly say, he's doing the healings because he's a demon. He's the Lord of the demons. He's possessed by Satan himself, which they called Beelzebub. And so they're going to make the accusation that all the good that's happening, the truth that's being taught, the, the forgiveness that's being given, the love that's being expressed, the community that's being reestablished, all of this that's happening, the priestly religious order is going to say, that's of Satan. He's of Satan. Get away from this. He is satanic and he's evil. This is their plot. They figure everybody else will leave now. They couldn't get to him through the family. They couldn't get to him by humiliating him publicly. They couldn't beat him in the rhetoric and in theology. So they're going to call him a demon and say, you're casting out demons because you're a demon. And in this moment, something happens. 
Jesus is going to shame them again <laughs> because he's, he's God, the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the word of the Bible, and they are misusing and misteaching the truth of Scripture. So Jesus is going to engage them directly. And, and what he says is, Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Now, that's how Matthew recorded it. By the way, Matthew was, was around there, too. So Mark and Matthew both record this event, and we know this as the unforgivable sin. Now, have you ever wondered about this unforgivable sin? You got, we, we've, we've thought about this. What's the unforgivable sin? What is that thing you can never be forgiven for? I had a, a dear friend. Let me rabbit trail for just a second. I had a dear friend when we lived in, in uh, Texas whose, um, whose mother had committed suicide. And he had been told by a pastor in his Southern Baptist church, believe it or not, that that's the unforgivable sin. God can never forgive you for that. She'll be in hell forever. Whoa, whoa, what, what, what are you talking about? That is nowhere in here at all. I've, I've been through this. That's just not in any way biblical. Can you ask for forgiveness for it? No, but that's not what we're talking about because the unforgivable sin and a sin you didn't get a chance to ask forgiveness for are two different things. And by the way, when Christ died on the cross, he died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And since he did that, you are God's child. You have been made righteous before God. God's atoning sacrifice is completely sufficient for you. There is no sin, Christian, hear me, there's no sin you are going to commit that is going to surprise God. He knew you when he knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows you today and tomorrow and at the end of your life and a thousand years before and a thousand years after because God exists across all of time. We exist within time and we seek to limit God with our own human finite rules and regulations and ideas. Hear me loud and clear. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a lover of God, and God resides in your heart, there is no unforgivable sin for you. Are you hearing me? Only a Christian would ask such a question. Only a Christian would struggle with that kind of a question. So here's my comfort I want to offer you today. If you struggle with that question, you're a Christian. And what's going on in your heart is the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin, okay? And you've got Satan whispering in your ear, trying to confuse you as to what an unforgivable sin is. Let's look very clearly. What is, an, uh, what is the unforgivable sin? It's on the screen behind me. It's not a trick. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. What is that? Well, he just gave you an example. Jesus is healing. Jesus is forgiving sin. The Holy Spirit is empowering sick people to be well. The truth of Scripture is being, the Word of God is being taught. Demons are being cast out. The power of the Holy Spirit is being exhibited right there in that moment. And there's no way this can be attributed to anything but God. But the priests of his day, the, the apostate Jewish religious authorities are going to want to take the credit from God and give it to Satan. And they want to do that because they want to make sure that the message isn't getting across. Now, in its original language and context, there's a few things that go on here we miss in Western English. There is an element of attributing. Okay, There is some misdirecting. There's deceiving, 
and there's clearly intent. So if you're the lawyer type, there's intent. Okay, got it? So there's an intent to deceive, to misdirect, and to attribute the work of God to Jesus of the Holy Spirit to wickedness and to evil. Now, I go through all of this and belabor the point so that you will understand this. To look at God and His action and the action of the Holy Spirit forgiving and healing and drawing people to Himself, creating community, doing great deeds and making a genuine difference in the world, to look at that and to hope to deceive people away and to turn people away from the gospel of Jesus Christ because you hate God that much and to seek to discord and divide and to destroy God's message by calling it the work of Satan and it's evil and it's wicked and it's hateful and it's backwards and it's godless and it's not truth. That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, before we start to think in our modern world that this is some ancient, bygone thing, I want to be very careful to remind you of something. Many of our kids go off to schools, and they listen to teachers say that there's no such thing as God. There's no such thing as always right and always wrong. There is no absolute truth. The Bible is a lie. Christians are haters. They're phobic this, phobic that, phobic this. The work that Christians do, they only do it for their own wealth or their own edification, their own building up. They're nothing. They're backwards and they're stupid and they use the Bible as a crutch and they use God as a crutch. Friends, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And it is serious. And it's going on in our culture today, just like it was going on in Jesus' culture there. We must be teaching our children, our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, our friends, the truth of the Bible and teaching them to stand firm on what Scripture has to say and not to yield to the critics of culture. Now, whatever you may think of of politics right now, whatever you may think of education right now, I want you to understand, we as the church of Jesus Christ, Christian people, have a responsibility to stand up for what the Bible has told us in the political realm, in the educational realm, in the workplace, and not to yield, but also not to, through our behavior, contradict what the Bible teaches and therefore discredit the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the part we call backfire. And now the last part of this, I really want to drive home the final point. And that is simply this, Mark 3, 34 to 35. Jesus, looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother, my sister, my brother. Church, Jesus' family is you. We are the family of Jesus Christ. Who's your mama? It's The ladies around you, it's the mothers, the grandmothers, the sisters, the aunts who are around you are aunts. In a place like this, all of us have a responsibility, connection with one another. We are the family of God. When you become a child of Jesus Christ, you become a part of a broader family of billions. Your clan is the largest clan in the history of the world. Isn't that cool? You're part of a massive family, a family that supports one another, encourages one another, a family that speaks the truth in love, a family that comes alongside when you have needs, a family that raises you, takes responsibility for you, catches you when you fall, calls you out when you get off course. 
backs you up when you need somebody there, provides for you when you can't provide for yourself. When you're sick, when you're in need, that family wraps you up. They're there standing beside you, supporting you, praying for you, and loving you. That's the family. And what Jesus is trying to say, and he's demonstrating to these people right here, who is my mother, my brother, my sister? Folks, look around you. Who's your neighbor? Who's your family? This is your family. The family of Christ is your family, and we owe and should be responsible to one another in this room and in the second service and in our life groups. We are responsible to those people just like we are to family. We need to love and support and encourage and back up and protect and and catch all those folks who are part of the family of Jesus Christ because they are our brothers and our sisters. On a day like Mother's Day, the, the beauty of it is this. It's not just my mom that I'm celebrating today. It's not just my wife who's a great mom that we celebrate today. It's all of you who are moms and grandmothers. All of you are celebrated today. And the responsibility that you have to your children, to your family, and to other families and children around, it is all a part of being in the family of Jesus Christ. That's who we stand with. It's a bigger sense of family. Jesus' family was a clan. Your family is a clan of Christians around the globe. Let's make sure the message we walk away with today is the church is your family. We stand together. We support together. And when somebody crosses a family member, you stand up for them. When a family member is um, mistreated in the workplace because they take a stand for Jesus, they need to know that the thousands and thousands of other brothers and sisters in the faith in Door County are going to come along and stand with them because that's what family does. Now, how you work that out now in your life groups this week, it'll be fun to see. How you work that out in your family groups, it'll be fun to see. But I want you to understand, we are community. And the reason our church is called a community church is that we honestly believe that we are the community of faith, the family of Jesus Christ, and that's our responsibility to one another. I'm going to close this in prayer today, and while I'm really going to ask, and our worship team, you guys can just stay seated. We'll just close in a time of prayer. I just really want you, in this time of silence, to be asking yourself, God, do I see, do I see myself as a member of a family? And if not, can you help me to think that way? Part of the family of Jesus Christ, part of the family of faith. Let's take a few moments, just eyes closed, heads bowed. Let's take a few moments in prayer, and we'll close in a time of prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that as your your sons and daughters, we're the firstborn among many, many brethren. Father God, that you gave your life, your love for us. You did so because we are sons and daughters, we are children. We have the same Father in God. Lord, I just ask that we begin to see ourselves here in Sturgeon Bay and in Door County as part of a family, of a clan, one that loves each other and supports one another, as if we are family. 
And Father God, the way that we reach out to neighbors, the way that we reach out to other family members would be an example to everyone around us of a transformed heart and mind, showing what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy because we are the family of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that our neighbors would be curious. I pray that our employers and coworkers, and I pray that our our employees, I, I pray that our friends and neighbors would just wonder, what is it that's so different? What has changed? God, let them read the Bible through our behavior and our actions and be drawn to the question, what must I do to be saved? God, I pray that our relationship with you would be strengthened this week as we really see you as Father. We really see the people around us as brothers and sisters. Lord God, this morning we thank you for mothers. We thank you for those who have patiently nurtured and reared us, taught us values, and loved us as you loved us, God. I thank you for life that they gave us. And I just pray today that all of us are are stirred to be able to say thank you to moms and to wives and and those who have um, given their life to being nurturers and life givers. God, these things we pray together as the church of Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for your time today. Go in peace.